Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. This episode of the Sustainability and You podcast, we interview Mindy Hernandez on the intersection of sustainability and behavioral science. Mindy leads the World Resources Institute's Living Lab for Equitable Climate Action. She is an applied behavioral researcher focusing on pro social behaviors like energy conservation, voting, and medication adherence. Previously, Mindy advised governments, companies, donors, and NGOs around the world on applying behavioral science to measurably improve programs and policies, including working as a liaison to the White House's social and behavioral science team for the US Agency for International Development, and as a fellow for the Federal Office of Evaluation Sciences. I'm also absolutely delighted to welcome Katie Davis to the Sustainability and You platform as a new young ambassador. Katie recently joined political communications agency Seahorse Environmental, where she works as a consultant specialising in energy and sustainable finance. And before this, Katie was a journalist at IJ Global, reporting on mergers and acquisitions in the renewable energy sector across Europe. Her work included writing exclusives on large-scale renewable deals, alongside in-depth case studies on a variety of sectors. So hello, everybody, and welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast. I'm absolutely delighted today to welcome Mindy Hernandez to our podcast, but also our new young ambassador, Katie. Before we move on to an introduction to you, Mindy, I'd love to just ask Katie to introduce herself to everybody because this is her first podcast. So Katie, over to you. Thanks, Josephine. A pleasure to be here. So a little bit about me. I am a consultant at Seahorse Environmental, and that is a communications agency focused primarily on renewables. A lot of work on political strategy, media strategy, but also campaigning and more recently ESG auditing. And prior to this, I worked as a journalist at IJ Global, where I reported on renewables uh, M&A deals in, in Europe. Fantastic, Katie. Thank you for that. And welcome to our platform. Really delighted to have you on board. Mindy, I'd love to move over to you now. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career trajectory to date? Uh, Sure. So 
great to be here. My name is Mindy Hernandez, and I'm an applied behavioral scientist. Um, before joining WRI, my background is really in applying the insights from behavioral science to what we refer to as kind of the thorniest social issues. They're often um, issues of pro-social behavior. So those areas where we need all humans to behave in a way that is good for all of humans, um, but where human nature tends to fall into an intention action gap where we intend to do something, but for various reasons, we don't do it. So you can imagine this plays a huge role in things like financial savings, in things like medical adherence, and obviously, and most critically, for our life here on the planet and climate change. Well, thank you for that introduction, Mindy. This all sounds very fascinating. So I'm really, really excited to have this conversation with you. I'd love to start with some of the basics, um, if I may, and ask you to explain to us the fundamental tenets of behavioral science and then move on to how it links to sustainability. So I would take the the words separately and I would just add applied behavioral science because there's a lot that behavioral science does in the lab. What we're really focused on is how do you apply it to real world challenges? So the application is, can we take these lessons to solve real world challenges and not just at an individual level, right? So you get this idea of nudging has really caught fire. And I think there's a lot that nudging can do for a subsection of the population. But when we talk about at WRI, and in the work that I do, when I'm talking about application, we're starting to think beyond nudging and applying it just to individual or community or a couple of households. But how are we applying it to policy level changes? How are we applying it to COP commitments? Um, that kind of application. And then the behavioral recognizes that individuals make decisions that are influenced by a variety of factors, right? There's this assumption, usually unspoken, unrecognized, that humans make rational decisions. But as you know, as everybody knows who doesn't, you know, go for a run or eat enough salad or, you know, do all the things that we have the information and if we were purely rational beings, we would do, um, don't do. Um, we know that we're influenced by personal biases, by time constraints, social norms, um, in ways that don't result in rational or optimal decisions. Um, and then the science part of it obviously refers to, you know, just a huge breadth of research that has been done in the last 20, 30 years, two Nobel prizes um, in economics for behavioral science insights. And I think it also refers to the fact that we're not trying to like madmen as, you know, just shoot off different ideas and see what people think of them and get, you know, some textural sense of if it works or not. But it's a real scientific endeavor where we're trying to see does policy A change behavior and change climate impacts more than policy B? Does message A change behavior more than message B? By what quantification? For whom? How do we make it better? Yeah, I was just wondering what prompted the um, WRI to bring this to the fore at this particular point in time? I know you've been with them for a year or two, but what 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 was it that signaled the need to raise the profile of this particular discipline? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's interesting. I think 
a lot of the credit or all of the credit go to a couple of people inside WRI, Craig Hansen, Daniel Bernard, Sophie Atwood, who um, were part of, Craig really is now one of our executive VPs, but really helped with Daniel and Sophie to run our food program in addition to doing a lot of other things. And in food, I think for some reason, people can see the connection to behavior. It seems more obvious, right? Like we are putting things into our mouths. Can we change the way we do that? So they really um, pioneered with the, you know, the food work at WRI, applying behavioral science to food. And they got some really exciting results from menu change um, Mm -hmm. work. So language changes. So Basically, if you look at a menu and it has a vegetarian side and a regular regular side, right? And they found that for a lot of reasons, people avoided the vegetarian side and chose things more on the other side of the menu. But by just reorganizing the menu and then naming the vegetarian meals, not as quote unquote vegetarian, right? But using really descriptive appetizing terms like hearty soup. Um, stick to your ribs, mashed potatoes, people tended to order more, right? And so it, I think it gave WRI as an institution who was always curious about this kind of the proof point to say, wow, in this kind of change that feels very actionable, doable, feasible, we can see these changes and changing the way that people eat. I think part of what they did as well is they quantified um, along with other organizations in the space, but they started to quantify just how big the impact of meat eating um, and food loss and waste is on emissions, right? So it's it's enormous, and I think it was underappreciated until they came out with some of their work. So all those things combined, I think WRI had kind of the passion and the insight to say, let's invest in this. And to their credit, they really have. Um, let's, let's invest in this and see what we can do, not just in food, but in energy, cities, transport. And obviously, behavioral science has a hugely important role to play in, in nudging individuals' behaviors. Some would even go as far to say it's uh, the secret ingredient for climate action. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. I think that the way that we look at it is that it's as if we've been fighting the climate challenge with one hand tied behind our back, right? Because we keep looking at it from the supply side when it's it's not a tech challenge, it's a socio-technical challenge. And so when people say things like it's the secret ingredient or it's what we need, it's because it's fully half of the equation. If you just think about it in economic terms of simple supply and demand, if we're only looking at the supply side and completely ignoring the demand side, that's a real problem. So I think people are looking at that and saying, hey, there's just a complete field here. There's all the humans here that we have left out of the equation. And if instead of ignoring them, right, started to leverage these insights and pay attention, then maybe we could achieve that. Yeah, and the IEA actually drew out that side of it, didn't they, with the energy crisis saying that if you can shift behaviours on the demand side, then actually that's really going to help with the current energy crisis. And that's the first time I had seen, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, a, a very strong statement on on demand side. Yeah, and I would say the IEA is, is if you know folks want to go onto their website, they've done a they've done a good job of creating some tools too that are really helpful in thinking about how do you change your behavior, right? So we start stop just talking about people and the abstract, but 
we all have power in this situation. Um, so I think the IA has done a good job there. So we talk a lot, uh, Mindy, about sustainable growth, um, yet the two would seem incompatible in some ways as growth itself fuels future carbon uh, emissions driven by increased consumerism. So if we look at that sort of dichotomy, if you like, and 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 the need to transform behaviours or buying behaviours um, in the future, what what's your views on that and how realistic is it do you think that we can ask future generations to shift their wants and desires for the future in a different way to our our current consumerism yeah i think i would say two things i mean i think the first one is it's a it's an important question to say how do we disentangle human growth and human development from the degradation of the planet and I think that's especially true for marginalized populations, the developing world, right? So we did a study in India looking at the impact that cities and buildings are having, um, electricity use. And part of that is because people ha- now have access to electricity who didn't before, right? People are moving to more urban areas, more rural areas. Should I ask those people who have not had reliable electricity to use less electricity, right? When people in the United States are burning 100 times the amount of electricity, that doesn't really make any sense. So I, I think it's about how do we instead think about growth in a way that can be regenerative and that has opportunities. And that involves huge investments in green energy, green jobs, et cetera, the the just transition that is possible if we make the investment. So one of the things that we're working on with our WRI Africa colleagues is moving people who rely on biomass, so wood, coal, who don't have any choices other than to burn wood how do we get solar lamps and solar home systems, which are available to those homes so that they can read, study, you know, have more economic opportunities, all things we know happens when you have light. But in order to do that, there needs to be fine, huge financial investment, right? Because that can only happen with low-income populations if there are microloans available. Microloans are only possible, right? If there is a solid financial pool to decrease some of the risks. And so I think we we just have to change the way that we think about it a bit, right? From like, people have to stop behaving this way and that will be bad for growth and development to how do we help people behave in a 1.5 world way, meaning 1.5 degree, which is where we need to get to. Yeah. How do we invest and support them? And it's a great way, isn't it, of connecting the financial commitments that were made by the developed economy at COP26 to the needs of developing nations, you know, current currently, which will be further explored, uh, as you know, at COP27. But that requires a lot of financial innovation uh, and creativity in different ways of allocating capital and different financial instruments and structures for that. But it's interesting how we need to connect that in a way to human behavior uh, yeah. and experiences uh, and just get a little bit more financially real about that. So I like that point of connection, actually. Yeah. 
And the, the second point that I would make kind of builds on what you're saying, which is connecting these financial instruments to human behavior. I think part of what needs to happen so that we can do that more is changing human behavior means nudging individuals to changing human behavior means huge investment in time and policy. Lowenstein is one of the foundational folks in social science, and he and his co-author just put out an article where they talk about I-frame and S-frame, and this sounds a little policy wonky, but basically what what he's saying is that after 40-whatever years of applied behavioral science, that it's possible that we did a real disservice to the way that we are looking at changing the human behavior because we as a field talked about things so much as individual framed, right? So he talks about this as the I frame rather than the S frame, the systems frame. And what he's saying is that the problem isn't a lack of will or attention, that these problems remain unresolved because of the active and coordinated efforts that block system change. Very interesting. Right. And from those who benefit from the status quo. And so this is a quote from him, uh, from both of them, from their article. The real problem lies not in human fallibility, but in institutions, laws and regulations. And I would say financial Mm -hmm. structures and investments that render such fallibility largely irrelevant. In short, we had mistaken deep systemic problems of political economy and conflicts of interest for problems of individual human folly and responsibility. Yeah, very acute um, observation and actually mirrored by what Descupta said, didn't he, in the Descupta review, The Economics of Biodiversity, because he talked about institutional failure. And actually, you needed to resolve that in order to preserve uh, and enhance our relationship. And he talked about our relationship with, with nature. So that that that's a really interesting and enormous challenge. <laughs> isn't it because there you're talking about institutional political nudges you know moving beyond the 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 individual nudge how do you get politicians and governments to to coordinate collaborate and change yeah I mean I I think that that is part of it but I think that it's also about just prioritizing the nudges that we know can make a difference that need to be instituted into policy. So like in the US, the law that was just signed by Biden has enormous financial incentives for both EV consumers and fleet operators, right? So how do we get people to buy EVs? A lot of people can't afford them. It's just that simple. And so if you want to change behavior, one of the things we know is that things need to be easier financially easier, but also just physically, mentally easier, right? And so one of the things that law does as well is, is it um, it starts to build charging stations where there aren't any. It invests in charging stations where there aren't any. And if I see charging stations in my community, we know that people are more likely to buy an electric vehicle because it seems possible. So I'm just saying, you know, we don't have to say like, okay, well, we need to nudge, you know, Biden or Modi to change the way they act. I think that we can look at some of these changes that need to happen on an individual level, but ask how do we put policies into place mm-hmm. that can help people uh, change their behavior. On that note, what what do you think is more effective when it comes to demand side policies? That the carrot of say making you know improving 
uh, cycle lanes or, or making them more accessible or the stick of charging people for, you know, not bringing their own plastic bags to the supermarkets? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good question. I would say as a good, you know, social psychologist, it depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. So in some in some cases, you're going to need more carrots. In some cases, you're going to need more sticks. Mm-hmm. But I think in all cases, there needs to be, like we talk about a policy mix of monetary and fiscal policy often, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that there needs to be a policy mix in behavioral policy as well, yeah. where you have supportive policies and restrictive policies. So one of the things we think about with the city's team all the time is how do you get people to take bikes more often, right? To opt into either active transport or public transport and opt out of car use. And this Mm -hmm. is the perfect carrot or stick situation. You just make parking really expensive and non-existent, but that makes people really angry, right? And if you're a politician putting that into play, you can imagine the people, you won't stay a politician very long. So there Mm -hmm. needs to be, right, some mix of there's some taxes for parking, but at the same time, you're giving people a solution, which is protected bike lanes, you know, accessible bikes, mm-hmm. buses go where you need to go that are clean and on time and all that stuff. I mean, here's a question um, that maybe sort of blends this, this, this discipline with a sort of ethical question, if you like. Is this a form of manipulation where there's this, I'm not going to call it a big brother attitude towards understanding the fundamentals of human nature and how people react in different situations. But there is there are, there are there's a fundamental assumption that a human will behave in a certain way in response to these policy drivers. So what what yeah, what's your view on that? I think that there is no neutral policy. So all policy is manipulative in some ways. And because humans are influenced by such small factors, there's no neutral program. There's no neutral product. Like my iPhone comes with settings. Are they manipulating me to keep those settings? Yes. But it it still has to come with some factory settings. It's, I'm not going to go through and research every setting that needs to be on my phone. And so I think that the same is true of, of policy and practices. And when we do something like make parking free in a city, that's not neutral. Hmm. That makes driving easier. People will drive more. There will be more pollution, which, you know, disproportionately impacts marginalized poor black and brown people. And, or we could price it, yeah. which decreases parking. There's less pollution, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess what I am saying is that there's manipulation. It's everywhere. <laughs> everything we do because we're humans and we're influenced by things and so we can pretend that it doesn't exist or we can name that it does and then name well what are we working toward here what's our goal yeah and I guess um bringing it out of the subconscious into the conscious is is quite important isn't it to have people make much more conscious choices they rather than sort of subliminal influences because it's so important that we raise levels of um, education but also information in order that people can make uh, more informed uh, choices I mean is there a fundamental um, assumption here that people are self-interested I mean I I I and it, on one hand, you can say, well, that, that that's true if you believe the sort of Richard Dawkins selfish gene kind of theory of sort of life. And there's 
there's often commentary within the climate sphere, isn't there, that it's only when we see a catastrophic event that we'll react to it. If it's on, if it's not in my backyard, then it's somebody else's sort of problem. Um, ha- you know, one of the challenges of deploying finance into the developing economy is is probably partly due to that because it's happening somewhere else. You know, there's damage to the environment somewhere else, even though the developing economy has accepted responsibility or its part in contributing towards that. And and to your point then on, you know, uh, as institutions, the blockers then that stop the acceleration of the deployment of capital is partly, it strikes me as a function of that. How do we address that when it is human nature, either as individuals or collectively as institutions, they are, after all, collections of individuals. So, how do we how do we shift that? What's the what's the answer? The first part of that is an assumption that people are selfish, which we don't live. You know, as as many problems as we have, we don't live in a hellscape, right, where everybody is literally out for their own and running over people to get where they need to go. I think the arc of human history has shown us that it, you know. To, quote MLK, does bend towards justice. It's just very long and very hard and very painful to watch. So the field of evolutionary psychology actually thinks a lot about this. Um, And so here I'd like you to imagine, you know, our Stone Age ancestors. On one hand, selfishness was in their biological interest. If they gave away all their food to others, they would starve. But cooperation is also in our biological interest. And many argue it's been the key to human dominance as a species over time. So imagine that same Stone Age grandfather uh, who takes all the food for himself, but in the process, he really pisses off the clan and he would be ostracized for that behavior. Now that's bad for him and his offspring. He can't sleep in the cave. He doesn't have the protection of the group. None of the females will talk with him, let alone mate with him. So that's also bad for him biologically. Um, And so you can see that there's a push and pull in human nature of, sure, there's some selfishness, but there's also some deeply rooted instincts for cooperation. Um, We see this in social good games that are done um, in the field of psychology and game theory. These are various experiments where a subject is asked, for example, to split $10 with another subject. And in general, I'm simplifying, we see a lot of cooperation in those games. So, you know, it's not that we're purely selfish, but we definitely are in this works against us. And the climate crisis and in many other pro-social behaviors is present biased, which means that we really value things more in the present moment than in the future. So, for example, in experiments where people are offered $10 today versus $12 tomorrow, most will pick the $10 today. They literally value having that sooner. Um, And so when climate change consequences feel different, we are less motivated to act. Now, there are things that we can do about this, and this is part of what we do at WRI as the behavioral science team, is about leveraging behavioral science instincts to say, because we're present biased, we need to frame the environmental benefits and costs in the most present, relatable terms possible. So I was born and raised outside L.A., Um, Growing up, we always, you know, we'd get these pollution alerts for days that, you know, it was very polluted and we were supposed to be careful and not go 
probably sure how we could even be careful. But anyway, that was uh, part of my daily life. So let's imagine a California clean air policy. Rather than saying, as you know, we often do in climate world language, this change would result in you know, 20 gigatons of CO2e reduction. We should frame it in order to get more public support for this as here's what this policy will do for pollution in LA in the short term. Here's how many pollution alerts you will not get. Here's how it will improve the lives of those with asthma. Here's a picture of the LA skyline, clean and clear. Um, and so to leverage these behavioral insights in our research, but we hope more more so in the climate change space broadly, we're working to quantify these benefits of climate action in these present moment terms. So I don't agree that that people are just selfish. Like, are people motivated by selfishness? Absolutely. But I think we can also see that they're motivated by ideas for God, tree, planet, nature. So that would be the first part. I think the second part, I'm going to need you to repeat because that was a long question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was. A, so yeah, I apologize. It was a very long question. Um, if that premise was right or in the field of finance or or or, pol- or politics, if, if that premise is a driver because of people's motivations for it could be self-promotion it could be power it could be a number of motivations that aren't all altruistic the the challenge then of getting people to convene uh, around an issue like deployment of capital into uh, developing economies I mean it's, it's a very big challenge because there needs to be collective political will a huge impetus to accelerate capital in that way because all things are pop- possible. We've seen that in COVID, you know, that, that actually where there is a huge amount of collective will to solve a problem, it can happen, but we're not seeing the same impetus and acceleration of that will around the much promised capital to developing nations. Yeah. So I think part of my answer would be um, we need to expand instead of just thinking of it of self-interest. I think we need to expand what we're looking at and think about what motivates people to act in new and totally different ways, right? Sometimes that's self-interest, but we need people's incentives to be aligned so that they will take these monumental, sometimes radical actions. And to do that, one of the things that I talk about when I introduce people um, to applied behavioral science um, or applied behavioral economics is you imagine that graph that we all learned in like Eco 101 with supply and, and, and cost and as cost, sorry, demand and cost. And as demand, um, as cost goes up, demand goes down, right? If apples cost $50, I'm going to buy less apples. And you think about that as what motivates action, right? And it can be cost. But we so myopically look at cost as financial cost. It's in terms of dollars. And if we open that up and say, but we all behave based on other costs. There's like the cost of shame, which working on global health, I see firsthand all the time, or I did when I worked on that, where people wouldn't take their HIV drugs that were free and available because it was embarrassing to go to the clinic. And so they would die. 
it's, I mean, the, the cost of shame, embarrassment, doing something that is out of the norm is huge. But, you know, you can also think about the cost of ease. How do we make things easier for people, including people that need to take these chances, heads of big financial institutions that can invest differently, right? So what is the cost of shame, of just shaming people into acting differently? This is not something that I advocate for, but I think it's another way to look at things. Um, And so there are examples of some key policymakers, actors who you know, their granddaughters or daughters came to them and were like, nobody wants to play with me because you invest in fossil fuels and everybody makes fun of me at school. And they've had to kind of come face to face in a social way with their actions. Um, I think the work that was done in Europe around flight shame, again, I, I actually don't support this, but there is some evidence that people started taking trains because they felt differently. So anyway, I, I think my my broad answer is just we really have to think more differently and bro- more broadly about what motivates people and how we align their incentives. And while people may not necessarily be inherently selfish, there is still, as, as Josephine touched on earlier, this, this sense that it's not happening in my backyard, then I don't need to react to it. So we are, we're obviously seeing climate disasters around the world, but in in localized areas, do you think it's going to require a a large scale kind of black swan climate disaster for everyone to take it as seriously as they need to? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I do think that it helps when it touches people in their own lives. And so you can see the energy crisis that has hit Europe and the U.S. And all of a sudden people are like, we need solar solutions. We need electric solutions. Give us to us right now. I think that it takes a while for people to feel that those things are real. And so I don't know that we need, hopefully, you know, a black swan apocalyptic event. But I think the the more that people can actually see and interact with what's happening, I think that will help. But I also think that we as the climate community need to do better to package our messages in ways that show people how climate change affects them every day, including policymakers, right? So one of the things that we're trying to do is say, look, if you shift people, if you help make the policy changes needed in a city to help people shift from auto use to public transport or active travel, not only is that good for the climate, but people are going to save money, which is good for you politically, right? People will be happier. People can get to their job places. Maybe we can decrease unemployment. It will decrease asthma. What we're trying to do is is put the climate changes that we need away from, look, this is just about the planet and put it in terms that are more packaged of how this affects you. Would you like to breathe easier, right? So there's, there's good research on when you talk to people about climate change broadly, you don't see as much energy. But if you say like, do you want clean water? Do you want clean air? Is it important that your kids you see a more um, kind of enthusiastic response? And so I think that's on us to, to reframe the messages. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's helped by the fact that the world is increasingly interconnected as well, as we've seen by, you know, the pandemic, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So it's an unavoidable reality for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you hope so. But it's, it's even if it is objectively unavoidable, sometimes it's easy in your head to separate. 
say, that's not me, that's not coming to me. And so I think that's why it's so important for us to frame messages that help people connect the dots that like mm-hmm. what's happening there does impact you. It is important to you and here's why. Wendy, um, we live in an era of misinformation uh, and we've seen that we've seen not only the provenance of information being misused at a political level, um, you know, we could you know, refer to significant current Russian leaders and uh, ex-US leaders um, in this vein. As, you know, one of the general public, how do we um, decipher what information is real or not it or not real as receivers uh, of information, but also how that information is used and communicated to express political will or decisions or, or, or personal perspectives. It can be quite confusing, can't it? And, and we've, we've seen um, the abuse of information and use of information in this way and how people have been manipulated, even in political elections. What, what should the, the consumer or the, you know, what, what should people be aware of? And how, how do we trust information and, and the way it's communicated more? How do we develop integrity within that? Uh, I think that's a fantastic question. I would say that's sort of outside of my particular realm of expertise. There's an organization, um, the Center for Humane Technology, that was started by the ethicist at Google, who left Google, and has a lot, that organization has a lot to say about this that is much more thoughtful than anything um, that I could say. I would just say, you know, as a behavioral scientist, that the messages that we receive are incredibly important and we should be paying attention as consumers, regulators, and take this seriously as things that can be weaponized. So Mindy, I'd love to ask why the private market doesn't engage with this concept more given the significance of it. What's your views on that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I would say, you know, I think there is some engagement and WRI has partnerships. We just wrote a great paper with Honda um, looking at changing consumer behavior around smart charging. So there is some engagement and partnership and investment, but there's certainly not enough to turn the tide. And I think that's because the, the price of carbon, the price of destroying our planet for profit is not accurately priced. It is a iconic market failure. And we are all living inside of that market failure. And it's devastating. And the answer to market failures is that those things become a public good, or at least public-private partnership, right? Where government regulators, private foundations, in addition to the private sector, need to come in and act. And so that hasn't happened. I don't think it's accurately named as this massive market failure yet. And we can't expect just to say this is something the private sector must fix is to just kick the can down the road and look away because it's just not, it's never going to happen. So I think I would say, you know, being action oriented, if you are the head of, if you're a senior finance leader, if you're a leader in any corporation, you do have a role to play and play that role to the fullest. So what can you do? Who can you invest in? How can you model? How can you turn your company into a model for others that then needs to be picked up, right? By policymakers, by climate activists. 
if you think about our audience, and we've had a number of senior finance leaders within it, what what pearls of wisdom do you think that they could take away in how they use language to inspire and motivate and create change within their organizations? I guess I would answer this two ways. I mean, one is that the language that they use should obviously be action-based and that they are models for how other people think about things. One of the pieces of research that at WRI was about how to help WRI employees fly less. And one of the things that our research unearthed was that how they thought their supervisors viewed business travel so traveling, air travel for work, really impacted how they viewed it and how much they flew. These supervisors never said anything to them, right, explicitly. It's not like they had a contract that said they had to fly this many times. That's not how WRI works. But at some unconscious level, and in part because WRI senior staff fly a ton, which is something they are working on, they were modeling certain behavior, right, which is about traveling a lot. And so I think for those senior finance folks, senior leaders in any institution is to recognize that even if you don't feel it, even if you don't say it, even if there aren't explicit policies, people are following you as a model of behavior. And so both what you say and what you do matters a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second part of that is the is the do part, right? So what are you doing in your institution? What initiatives are you leading? Um, what changes are you making that will make the world better for the future generations tomorrow, right? So it's one thing to say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, or I donate to X, Y, and Z. But one of the things that we're working on is working with big corporations to actually change their regulations, change their flight regulations change the food that they serve? Why are, why, are, why are any of us still serving meat? Or certainly red meat. You know, it's expensive. People don't really care. And it's terrible for the climate. So there are a set of behaviors um, that we can take literally tomorrow in our organizations um, that are good for the environment, but also send a message as kind of a second layer of action to all the people in your organization and all of the people that look at you that say, this is not only important, but I'm changing the way that I live and the way that I work in accordance. And there's a real authentic thread to that, isn't there? That you infuse within the organization, the, the, the role modeling from the top, but you make it really authentic through the yeah. entirety of the organization and everything it does uh, and an employee's experience of it as well as a customer's or a client's experience of it. Yeah, it just trickles out. There's there's some good research from Elka Weber um, that shows that when people see that climate scientists and climate leaders are flying less or eating less meat, they're more likely to believe in the climate science. They're more likely to believe those climate scientists because it feels authentic, right? And when they hear that those leaders are flying more or doing things that are bad for the environment, um, there's more skepticism. Yeah. Well, over to you, Katie, then for our final question, if we can. Mm -hmm. Of course. So we've spoken a lot about the, the use of 
specific language. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier the, the cost of shame and, and specifically flight shame. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on the use of social taboos or, or buzzwords um, and whether they risk distorting our focus or or maybe diverting it from the most pressing issues. So I'm thinking of um, the use of plastic straws, for example, has become a, a huge social taboo. And yet, although you mentioned flight shame earlier, it's still normal for someone to say that they're jetting off to, I don't know, the, the Caribbean on holiday and that people wouldn't think twice. So do you think that there is often a kind of mismanagement of priorities because of these social taboos? It's mm, a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think that the social, basically changing our social norms, right? and changing our expectation of how people behave is an important part of this. Um, I will say on flight shame, we did something like that at WRI where we actually named how many people who was flying the most. And it was terrible. Mm -hmm. People were so upset. It didn't change how much people flew. And some of the pushback that we got, which I think is really relevant to this question is, look, you're not changing what's expected of me. I still have all of these meetings. People expect mm -hmm. me face to face. Senior staff expects this of me, but now I'm shamed for it. Yeah. So you haven't changed any of the constraints in my life, but now you're just shaming me for doing what is mm. expected. And that I think is what needs to change. So, so yes, the social norms are all part of it, but we also need the policy and supportive framework to help people change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the way that they behave, right? So, and that's where regulations and senior leadership come in. So at WRI, we now have regulations and rules about when you fly, how you fly, discussions with senior management that people have to have flight reduction goals. Um, and this is something other organizations are doing. So I think that while these taboos and social norms definitely play a part, it's a, it's a bit like the taxing parking situation, mm. right? We can't mm. just shame yeah. and tax. We also need to support mm. um, and mm. help people change their behaviors in ways that are sustainable. Mm. And I suppose, although you don't want to deter people from making lifestyle changes, you also don't want them to think they can save the world by just not using plastic straws. <laughs> yes, yes. I will say to, mm. to pick up a plastic straw, thank you for mentioning that. I mean, one of the things we are trying to do, so my initiative at WRI is called the Living Lab for Equitable Climate Action. One of the things we are trying to do is help people understand and prioritize mm -hmm. different behaviors because I think that there can be some misalignment between mm -hmm. what we pay attention to and what's impactful. Plastic straws, I mean, do not use plastic straws, but like infinitely more important is the energy that you use, how you get place to place, um, and the food that you eat. Mindy, um, what a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad that we've had this opportunity to speak to you and to really bring to the fore the relevance of applied behavioural science. And uh, I, I definitely wish we had more time uh, to, to, to speak to you, but it's a fascinating subject. I think there's so much that we can all take away from this. So thank you for sharing your insights. Um, really fascinating. And thank you, Katie, uh, as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Mindy.